course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios. A marvel to behold. Following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True Crime Uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. I know that because I checked my ID. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is apparently down with some strange illness. And Frank C. Gerardo Jr. is on a plane from Sacramento to San Diego. What are you going to do with yourself? Same thing I always do with myself until my arm gets tired. Hey! Lots of interesting things going on in the world I had my eyeballs operated on. Isn't it too late for that? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, actually, I had cataracts. And I prefer to lick a continental. Well, you know, I was already blind in my left eye. They said, let's see if we can go with the right one, too. Yeah, might as well. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. be blind in both, shall we? Yeah. So they gave me these dark glasses, just like Stevie Wonder and uh, Ray Charles. Damn, I still can't play the piano. Behind them Foster Grants. Yeah, <laughs> you got a good memory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Stevie Wonder behind those Foster Grants. <laughs> Man, that goes back about 40 years. Yeah, well, yeah. so do I. Yeah, I go back even further. Yeah. Farther? What's correct, further or farther? I don't know, and, you know. You don't really care. Yeah. It's moot, as Matt Alvin would say. It is one of those things that I, I don't have the answer to, and it annoys me, because yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's farther. Yeah, it could but be. But I don't know, man. You could be further off the mark without Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this is True Crime Uncensored. We got 10 minutes to film, so what we'll do in that case is we'll go on to the other exciting things that are happening in the world of uh, true crime. Notice that they uh, have extended this uh, this new rule, this new law or whatever, that if you were sexually abused by the uh, Catholic Church uh, priest or by a, uh, a Mormon clergyman, uh, they no longer get a King's X because it was that long ago. You can uh, still bitch about it. And uh, that's uh, lawyers are having a field day with that one. People are come crawling out of the woodwork. Although uh, I don't qualify, being as I was uh, never a Catholic nor a Mormon. And uh, we didn't even have a rabbi to molest me. We had to order out of town to get one. <laughs> you know, I was from Walla Walla, Washington, and well, we couldn't afford a regular rabbi. You have to, you know, rent one. Rent one for the high holy days. So you have to find one that no one else wants. <laughs> uh, our buddy, and I hope to have him on here again uh, uh, next week or week after, is uh, Dennis Griffin, who we had on a few weeks ago. Uh, he has a new book out called, <laughs> sorry, wrong number. Uh, someone called the wrong number. They meant to call the escort service. Instead, they called the FBI <laughs> or something like that. And so you wind up with an FBI agent. Uh, running an escort service. It's very exciting stuff. And uh, we uh, we hope to have uh, get us back on the show in a couple of weeks to discuss that one. We had uh, Kevin Sullivan last week, in case you missed it. I'm about to post that on uh, iTunes, Spotify, and uh, all those platforms. His yes is Bundy, Bundy, Bundy. Uh, all, all Ted Bundy all the time. He's very fortunate that, uh, that Ted Bundy existed. Otherwise... Kevin probably wouldn't have a career. He used to be a clergyman. Talk about going from one extreme to the other. But uh, uh, he said, if you heard the show before, or if you heard it last week, you know that he uh, he never intended to do this many Bundy books. But the, uh, the hue and cry from the fans of the worst serial killer in American history <laughs> saying, we need more Ted Bundy. And so, there he was, back investigating, back finding out more information, and now doing an encyclopedia, the official or unofficial, Ted Bundy Encyclopedia. Now, if you go back and look, you'll notice about uh, 11 years ago, when we first started this program, back from the hills of Encino, when Matt Allen had a, uh, a swimming pool that started to look a lot like the one he has now. <laughs> what happened to that pool, Matt? 
uh, we had Kevin on with his first book on Bundy, which was The Bundy Murders, clever title, published by McFarland, which actually was the same publishing company that uh, published my Edgar Award-winning uh, book on The Saint, an excellent uh, Excellent publishing company that primarily does scholarly works by brilliant uh, <laughs> researchers such as Kevin and myself. Uh, you don't usually find them in stores, but you find them high-priced <laughs> wherever high-priced books are sold. Uh, they even came out with a paperback version and an ebook version of Kevin's book, which is good for him. Uh, they haven't done an ebook of uh, my Saint book yet, but hopefully they will soon so that I can get more checks in the mail. Oh, what uh, what I think you just missed <laughs> moments ago was a three-book deal, a book by uh, M. William Phelps. The M stands for Matthew. Uh, a book by Steve Jackson, Boogeyman, and Burl Bear's Murder in the Family. All of them, all three books for, get this, 99 cents. Which means I don't see how I make a damn penny off of that. But I guess they uh, they make their money in volume. <laughs> I haven't quite figured out how that works, but I think today was the last day on that from Wild Blue Press. Heck of a deal. Also, I understand they're going to put out Burl Bear's Greatest Hits, a, uh, a three-book set of uh, three of my most popular books that you can own and cuddle with in the midnight hour which will make you very excited. And that's coming out sometime this year. I always had a feeling when they put out your greatest hits that your career is over. Uh. <laughs> I have a surprise for them. You know, it used to be that no recording artist had more than three hits. After like three or four, uh, figured your, your time in the spotlight had come to a, uh, a definite conclusion, and they put out a greatest hits album, of your greatest hits and then the B-sides of the singles that were equally hits simply by the fact that they were writing on the back of the A-side. Well, when the Beatles had had about three or four hits, Capitol Records said, boy, we got to unload these guys now, and they offered the Beatles to Columbia Records for $25,000. Columbia turned them down. Said, nope, their career is over, we don't want them. <laughs> Yeah, these are the smartest uh, music executives since Decca, who turned down the Beatles also. Hey, uh, I don't know if Matt's still in the room or not. No, he's off running around somewhere. But those of you old enough to remember, when the Beatles first hit in America, they weren't on Capitol. They were on, like, VJ and Swan and these strange labels you uh, hadn't heard of. And the only reason they had that exposure was because of our dear friend uh, who passed away, and that's P.F. Sloan. And one of Matt's greatest interviews in the history of the world was the uh, two hours he spent with P.F. Sloan on uh, Matt Allen's Outlaw Radio, which you could listen to still to this day on uh, on the Internet. Yes, if you type in Matt Allen, P.F. Sloan, I'll take you to Mixcloud. And uh, Mixcloud has the entire two-hour interview up there for you to listen to. And uh, it's fascinating, informative, and uh, Shadow Stevens even jumps in and joins in the fray on that. They congratulate Matt on such a great show. And uh, uh, it was it was fun having P.F. Sloan here. The weird, almost otherworldly sort of thing happened when we were done with the interview. Laurie Downey Jr. wants to take a picture of all of us with the great P.F. Sloan. As we get up to move over to where she wants to take the picture, someone's foot happens to hit the radio that's on the floor. <laughs> Why it's on the floor, we don't know. But what comes on is, it never rains in Southern California. Now, what does that have to do with P.F. Sloan? He was originally supposed to sing it, but he felt that the guy who wrote it should sing it, so he pretended he couldn't hit the notes so that the other guy could record the song and, of course, had a number one hit with it. He said, he said, slow, this is going to hurt your career. He says, well, it's going to help his. And that's the kind of guy P.F. Sloan was. Isn't that right? It is. I never did see the picture that Lori Downey Jr. took. I assume it exists somewhere on her little camera. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand by. Bradley Namdar.
Where, Richardson, Texas? Or Dallas? Richardson, Texas, yeah. Suburb of Dallas. Uh, you're popular in Dallas. They know all about you. <laughs> I had a good time in Dallas. No, uh, Dallas is a fun place. It's a diverse city um, from, you know, culture to people to industry to business to everything. I mean, it's it's definitely a fun place to be, a fun place to visit, a fun place to, you know, just uh, to, to find and explore new things. So I love Dallas. I'm glad you love Dallas. I was very f- more familiar with Austin because my, my, uh, my daughter was living in Pflugerville. Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's right side of Austin. Okay, okay, all right. So you you know Texas well. Yeah, I used to. Have, I actually wrote a book about uh, one of the famous Texas crimes, which was uh, Rhonda Glover shooting Jimmy Jost 13 times with a Glock 9mm because she believed that he uh, was having uh, sex with clones in the cave under her house. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, uh, that's, that's a that's good excuse. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what what the story is, but it sounds like a good novel. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a quite quite a story. It's been uh, they've done some TV adaptations on that. I was reading a little bit about your life, which I find uh, not too much about your early days, but sure. since but since uh, you manifested yourself in Texas, uh, you've done some pretty interesting things. There's a great quote from you where which I think is is very important. And you said, I believe in the importance of opportunity. Yes. And I'd like to expand on that because one of the big issues that America faces is the equal access to opportunity. A lot of people don't realize that equal doesn't mean same. It means of like value. That's why all people are created equal of equal value. They're not the same. But there should be equal access to opportunity to succeed. And you have worked very hard, from what I can tell, on making that kind of opportunity available. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, you know, so the United States of America, first of all, is the most powerful country in the world. It's going to be the most powerful country in the world for the rest of mankind, in my opinion. And it's a fact. I mean, if you look at... You know, from 1776 to now, nobody in the world can stand toe-to-toe with the USA. Not just on military, but also on socioeconomic, international, world trade and commerce, as well as opportunity to be able to make something of yourself. Now, at the same time, it's no secret that some people are born into social, socioeconomic standards and lifestyles, and some people aren't. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is the only country in the world that has a capitalist system, that has a free market enterprise that allows us to be able to explore, right, and to be able to try to make something from ourselves. You know, I mean, look at the Internet, you know, from the early 2000s to now. Look at how we've adapted as a country. I mean, from e-commerce and to world trade to finding everything from, you know, the click of a button. So opportunity is always available and it's always changing. It's about captivating the opportunity in front of you. you got to create your own luck, almost. You have to also be very passionate about what you want to do as well. Um, that's that's my opinion, if that means anything. Um, <laughs> well, it you know, does to you. That's, that's what motivates you, is we all yeah. have our worldview. And, uh, and, you know, it's interesting. There was a study done that said that most men will spend more time picking out a tie than they will their path in life, their career. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can see that. I mean, you know, I, I keep, I, I kind of have a set, you know, group of ties that I like, but, you know, <laughs> and when I think about it, you're right. We do spend a lot of time thinking about our ties, definitely, especially with what color suit you're wearing and the occasion. I yeah. go on about that. But, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, doing what you want to do in life, though, that's a very vast thing. I think it also changes as you get older or as you mature or as you have new experiences, you know, that is also where opportunity in this country also presents itself. Um, you know, if you could grow up wanting to be a professional football player, and then you realize, you know, you're not going to the NFL, but you're really passionate about, you know, maybe broadcasting sports. Right. And this country allows you to have that opportunity to pursue that. So dreams and opportunities are also adaptable, too, because everything changes. You know, some people think they'll be doing something one day, and then they're doing another thing another day. A lot of things. A lot of things are interrelated. I mean, I can only go off of my experience and, and look at, at your life and career experiences. There is, there are connections and interrelatedness uh, between saying uh, doing play-by-play on broadcast and doing the play-by-play on the field. You know, right? Uh, for I started off in radio broadcasting, playing the hits, and then into radio production. Then, gee, well, maybe I'd like to do TV production. 
Well, then right. maybe I'd like to write books. You know, <laughs> I mean, this all ties into what what the different linkages are in your interests and your talents and the opportunities you make for yourself. And a lot of times, you know, uh, I mean, you know, you also have to be a smart, you know, smart person when you're looking into the industry that you're going in. You know, um, you know, I, I remember someone, you know, once told me that, you know, passion doesn't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. You know, it pays the bills is money. And a lot of times people find themselves in situations where, you know, they're not passionate about something, but they're good at it. They add value to it. You know, they're, they're able to create commerce and help create jobs, and they pursue that. And, you know, you have to find happiness outside of necessarily what you do. So their opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is what we have in this country. And I think that that's something that, you know, we should always remember and value as well. Um, from athletics to candles to decor to art to consulting to international trade and commerce, um, it's been a very diverse experience of my life thus far. A lot of times, you know, passionate more about some things than other things, but also, you know, it's about seeing niches in the market and, and pursuing it. And if you don't, then you have yourself to blame. You know, you have to be able to push it and, and, to, and to see what can come out of it because ultimately, you know, you have to think about what's your ultimate goal in life. Yeah, well, hopefully it's uh, to help carry forward an ever-advancing, ever-progressing civilization. To make, a, sure. to make a contribution, to leave the world a better place for you being here than it was without you. That's the goal, right? Yeah. And and, and, some, and you know what? Here's the thing. There's, there's people in the world that, I mean, I'm friends with a lot of them. You know, I'm friends with a lot of artists. I'm friends with a lot of athletes and, 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 and professional people. I mean, I have a wide diverse network. And a lot of time the intrinsic values of what makes us happy are very different. I know some very stoic personality people, and they're happy with that. They're happy with, you know, that I sound content. And there's other people who want more. There's other people who want to make things better. There's other people who, you know, want to see change and this and that. So with such a rich, diverse culture that we have also in this country, too, I think that also has a lot, a lot of, um, you know, uh, what's it called? <laughs> just, just just, a lot of... Uh, Synergistic value. Of, oh, you know. <laughs> I was sitting in this uh, rural radio station and my buddy Tom Hodgins uh, owned in Walla Walla, Washington, when I was living there and uh, we were programming this thing together and having fun. And he put it up for sale. These people came down and this lady says, I notice you have a lot of uh, Hispanic people in your town. We're about 25% Hispanic population. And she says, do they cause problems or do they stick to themselves? And I said, well, tell me, do you cause problems or do you stick to yourself? That's a good response. That's a good response. <laughs> a reasonable you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy right now, especially, you know, with our socioeconomic climate, you know, this... Our country, like I mean, again, I don't, I don't, I don't care what you know. Anybody, if you're on the right side, you're on the left side. I think our country is a country that you know was all made by from immigrants that also worked hard and pursued the American dream. And um, I think that we're all you know Americans at the end of the day. So, and plus, you know, the Hispanic population is is awesome. I'm in Texas, man. So we, oh, yeah. you know, we love we love the Hispanic population <laughs> in Texas. You have to. It's uh, it's part of us. It's uh, plus boy, you don't want to have a festival. <laughs> exactly, and I have a soccer background, so you know, uh, in soccer, you know, it's a very very popular sport with among the you know Hispanic communities. You know, I'll tell you something. In 1965, I read an article. I think it was in TV Guide, some editorial, on two things that would never become popular in America. Yes, soccer and yogurt. <laughs> yeah. Those were the two things that would never catch on, soccer and yogurt. The guy was wrong, in case you haven't noticed. Yeah, I mean, in the soccer world, um, you know, we've made such big strides from the MLS to the NPSL to having USL to having multiple leagues, professional development leagues, you know, academy teams. I mean, I remember being the first Astagio for FC Dallas um, and also working with the academy team against Chelsea. You know, it's funny. They're 16-year-olds that are getting paid, you know, 7 million euros no. and, uh, against our 16-year-olds who are worried about the prom. So, yeah. you know, it, I mean, we, our, our, the game of soccer progressed a lot in the United States. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you win. Sometimes you qualify for World Cup. Sometimes you don't. And our women's teams is, is phenomenal. I mean, our girls, I mean, they're... they're I mean, you can't get better than our women's national team. And then yogurt, um, 
let's see. No, I think Younger is pretty popular. So, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty popular. Yeah, it did, that's, that's it did, it did catch <laughs> on. Yeah. Both those things didn't manage to catch on. Fact that the fact that you have that expression, soccer moms in America, cracks me up. <laughs> Kick out of that. It's true. And then, I mean, soccer is actually the most most played youth sport in the country. Really? So then people don't realize that. I mean, if you, if you ask kids, like for me, for example, I mean, I play Division One college football, and I'm five foot five, right? But I also grew up playing soccer. Everybody I knew played soccer when they're, you know, four to eight, you right. know, to usually the drop of age between they get competitive 13. So, but it is the number one youth sport in the United States. Huh. Just shows what a few decades can do. Absolutely. Now let's say let's take a little bit back about your career. Talk a little bit about how you wound up being in the football at five foot five. At five foot five, I could kick the hell out of a ball and throw the hell out of a ball, and I'm from Texas, so <laughs> that's yeah. all I gotta say. I'm yeah. from Texas, and I can kick and throw. That's all that really yeah, matters. I mean, it, was, it was like it's pretty simple. I mean, in eighth grade, I started playing football. Um, I wanted to be a quarterback, and um, you know, I, I can throw pretty well. But also, you know, being a soccer player, I kicked soccer style since I was in eighth grade. And you know, I'd go with my friends in the neighborhood. We'd go play, you know, sandlot style. You know, run ten yards and turn around, we'll throw it to you. And you know, do kickoff and punt. And I mean, I would really watch on the NFL games and also watch, you know, pretty closely. Not quarterbacks mainly, but you know, because I first threw sidearmed and then I learned to throw the correct way. But um, I would watch the kickers, you know, take three steps back, two steps over, jab step, one two, you know, and uh, you know, translated that that kicking into a football kicking. So eighth grade tryouts, I was on the B team. You know, they put me as like the second quarterback on the B team. But then when they brought out the kickers, they're like, all right, guys, you know, punt tryout, kickoff tryout. I was putting and kicking them pretty good that they went immediately and put me on the A team. <laughs> you know? It works that way. They moved one quarterback down, and they put me on the A team. And, um, you know, I kicked, I think, a 47-yarder in eighth grade. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was just something that, you know, I, I would go and carry, like, 12 bags of balls every day to the park. That was half a mile from my house. Practice kicking, punt, kickoff, uh, and, and, and kept doing it, you know, just all the way through college, you know. And it was something that, uh, it's just anything in life. You practice it, you, you have enough discipline, you can do it. And I think the funniest part was me punting because, you know, you watch now, you'll see guys that are 6'4", 190, 220, you know, whether they're very wiry or big, punting, you know, 65 yards, they got a big leg span. But for me, punting, I mean, I, I was punting just the same as everyone else. It was just about that impact point of the ball. Mm. Um, but it required a lot of practice. So, you know, if you practice it a lot, you'll do well in real life. That's true. You just got to keep doing it. Although practice doesn't make perfect, but it does make permanent. So you got to be make sure that you're practicing it correctly. Practice makes, um, I, I would say, practice makes preparation for opportunity. Because I can go out there, or someone else can go out there and kick a 65 yarder and practice and nail it. But then when you got four seconds left on the clock, with you know, uh, you're down by two and 22 million people are watching. Well, you can practice all you want. But that practice created you to have that opportunity to be able to nail it down the middle or miss it. And also as a kicker, you have to rely on your holder. You have to rely on your line. You have to rely on the guys blocking and the rush, the time. I mean, a lot of things go into it. But, um, you know, it's just one of those things where you got to be the best prepared you can be. And that's something that's really important, not just in kicking, but in life, I think. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Now let's do a little transition here. And that is how do you go from uh, kicking and punting to candles? So the story goes like this. I mean, uh, you know, there have been some articles. I've done other interviews as well from TV to, 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 to paper. I mean, there was one this past week um, that said something. I can't remember what it was, but it said something about the from soccer from soccer coach to from football to soccer coach to candlestick maker and I was and I started laughing when I read that but um, so story goes that you know I went to college and um, as you know played college football and I was in soccer at the same time I was doing an astagio which is a coaching apprenticeship at FC Dallas and uh, then I played for SMU at the same time. After graduating undergrad, I went and got my master's at SMU in dispute resolution, conflict management, mediation license, and all that stuff. And I was the SMU men's soccer director of operations. So by the time that I graduated, you know, I had MLS experience. I had the U.S. Development Academy soccer experience. I had, 
you know, NCAA Division One experience, and I also was coaching at a boys' prep school, St. Mark's. I was also coaching at Cooper Fitness Center. I created a social entrepreneurship called Dream Big that won a bunch of awards, including from the White House. And uh, we had over 20 sponsors that I coordinated in the Smee Big Ideas Award and a grant. So that was all probably half of what I did in undergrad, in grad school. So by the time I graduated, you know, I coached uh, and I was a teacher in a public school. Then I was a college coach for a men's and women's college program. And then after that, I decided to start my candle company because I had a secret hobby of making candles. Now, how, and, did you co- uh, how did you pick that as a hobby? Well, I mean, you know, because yeah, I, I had an apartment, and, you know, you wanted to smell nice and look nice, you know, especially when you're a broke college student. So, um, you know, I would buy candles from a mass retailer, don't want to say the name, and um, the candles, they, the wicks would die. And so I was like, how hard can this be? I mean, I'm spending so much money on candles. So I melted the wax, I put a wick in it and poured it in a container, and I thought it was kind of fun and therapeutic. Um, and, you know, but when you're in athletics, it's not the environment where you say, hey, man, do you want to smell my lavender candles, you know? <laughs> like a, kind of like a secret hobby. But my friends, you know, they'd come by, and, you know, I'd give them as gifts, you know, mom's house and, you know, people here and there, guys to get their girlfriends and stuff. And my friend said, I need to sell them. So we sold them at a farmer's market. We sold out in two hours. And one of the people who purchased it also worked in the World Trade Center. And I had... And I learned about how the world of international trade and commerce really works with showrooms and representation and mass manufacturing and and how it's supposed to go. So um, they believe in nothing my enough of my product because all we do is made and manufactured in the United States. So um, and I compete against you know people from China, people from Europe, people from all over the world. So um, you know we were we, we we were able to hold our own and also adapt to be unique and also take advantage of certain opportunities. My next door neighbor was a guy named, you know, Rob Levinsky from Arkansas. You know, he's one of the best stone curators in the world. So uh, we met and I collaborated with him on a new candle line and then, you know, we, uh, we, we signed in a bunch of retailers. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that. And then we expanded into art, into an art line where I signed, you know, some of the top artists in the country and we did commercial residential art. We do private gallery art. We do Formula One, which we're getting ready for as we speak. That's why I was a little late on the phone is that Formula one, I have to go down to Austin for CODA, Circuits of the Americas. Um, we did the uh, 2019, or 2018, and now we're doing 2019, uh, CODA's Arts. So uh, it's good. And we're in the Psychedelic Robot by Villains Gallery in Dallas. Yeah, um, I've been hearing a lot about the Psychedelic Robot stuff because of our mutual friend and former diamond thief, <laughs> Punch. Yeah, Punch. Punch is my guy, man. He's awesome. I mean, let me tell you something about Punch. He is um, by far one of the most kind individuals I've ever met. He is humble. He is very approachable. He, I could talk to Punch for 10 hours. I mean, whenever I talk to him on the phone, it's not a 10-minute conversation. Oh, never, I, never, I, never. <laughs> yeah, I'm prepared for an hour and plus. And, you know, if I ever needed anything, I knew Punch, you know, was always there to, you know, help or, or just to give me some feedback and advice on things. And He's a phenomenal artist, but even more of a phenomenal person. Him and his, the entire, you know, the crew that, that came to Psychedelic Robot from New York, you know, uh, Layer Cake, you know, he's an awesome guy. OG Millie, yeah. you know, Travis. I mean, I mean, the whole, the whole crew that came down to, to, to come and work were, were just, I mean, absolutely, you know, phenomenal. And, um, you know, Harris, too. I mean, they, these guys utmost professionalism, utmost um, class, and utmost quality of artwork that you can find. I mean, th- these guys are wonderful. I can't say enough good things about them. Well, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Uh, my feelings about Punch are the same as yours. I'm uh, thrilled and delighted to call him a friend and an associate. And uh, I'll tell you, the book's going to be coming out sometime this year, uh, Volume 1. Me, yeah, he tells me about that, too. I mean... You know, Punch's story is unique, and Punch's story is, is, is something that's also admirable, and also I think his story of, um, you know, redemption and not just, I don't want to say the word redemption, I want to say the word, um, his story of, of perseverance, there you go, um, and adversity, I think is, is, is really inspiring, and at the same time, you know, he's a, as an artist, I think he's second to none, he's, a, he's one of the top artists in the world. Well, he'll be thrilled to hear that if he's listening, I'll tell you that. But again, my opinion is not, I don't know if it's worth anything or not. I mean, I'm not necessarily, um, you know, like I said, uh, the most uh, 
known art person you know in the world but i think his stuff is some of the best art i've seen in you know in the world well that's fantastic he, uh, he says nothing but nice things about you as well and that psychedelic robot thing i guess is a wonderful opportunity to see a variety of artwork from some great you artists know, it's a unique it's a unique concept i'll put it that way it's a unique concept it's a unique um show so what it is is uh they have a immersive gallery experience and they like to do what they call democratizing art where they make gallery art available to the public and so you you go to the show and you're immersed by the top artists you know from around the world i would say but you know top top level artists from around the world um and you know from russia to you know, L.A., New York, Dallas, you know, uh, France. I mean, they have a great, diverse group of artists. And people go, they take a lot of photos. They have a shop now, um, a gift shop that they sell a variety of things from boutique designer shoes to also gallery art. And our artist, Omnibus, who's an anonymous artist on our label, he is a uh, participant in the show. He has a room, and he does... A lot of cool things, and, um, you know, that's how we, you know, Punch and the Nier crew and those guys we, we, we met was at the uh, installation of the Psychedelic Robot. And it's, it's, a really, it's a really cool show. You know, it's really cool. And it started on June 7th, and it was so popular they extended it. It's supposed to go through the end of December. Wow, I'd, I'd sure love to get down there and, uh, and experience it for myself. So maybe you if should. it's worth it. Maybe if uh, Punch sells a few good uh, good paintings there, I'll be rolling in the dough. We can fly me down. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, his stuff is definitely marketable. It's definitely really cool. I mean, all all the artists, you know, have have, have phenomenal work there. I mean, um, it's it's and it's you know it's it's for a diverse group of people. You know, that come in. Some people want to enjoy the immersive experience. Then you have serious, very serious art collectors and buyers and designers and stuff. So. You never know what you're going to get on any given day of the show. And um, it's, it's a really cool thing. I mean, I've had people who bought from our artists from California, you know, that came down and we shipped it to them. Um, we've had people from other countries coming by, um, from even uh, Turkey uh, and Istanbul area. So, I mean, you have a good diverse group of people. And it's also in prime location, Dallas. is a really nice, gorgeous area called the Crescent. So if you ever have time, I strongly advise you to come by and check out the show. Oh, I definitely will. That's, a, that's a, I won't say it's on my bucket list because I'm not dead yet, although I've been close this year, but miraculously I'm still here. Knock as on a, wood. Knock yeah, on wood. Get yeah. out. So, I uh, uh, still remain a great social irritant. I want to go back a little bit and talk about this thing about conflict resolution and negotiation and its linkage to opportunity because, you know, I've been, uh, as a true crime writer, I do a lot of research on the root causes of crime, there's a lot of disagreement. People will get, you know, we're all real wrapped up in one particular theory, and then it turns out that theory doesn't fly, you know, because it is it is as diverse as the crimes themselves. But what we do find is that when people have opportunity and a reduction in conflict and an improvement in their self-image, crime goes down. So it right. seems to me that you have been instrumental in transforming some lives that could have gone criminal. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was instrumental. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, everybody, you know, I, I think I would do what any normal person would do, which is to help guide kids or guide people into the right direction, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that that's something that you would do or anybody else would do. I think that crime and, and, and it, it's the environment that you're in. It's not something in that, that, that is innate. I mean, I do believe mental health is important in this country that we have to also take a look at, too. But at the same time, I mean, you know, you look at a lot of times there's people in tough situations that, you know, they, they may make a mistake or they may have been put in a position where um, they maybe weren't in the best version of themselves. And, you know, they make mistakes. But people that also, like you said, do have a lot of stress-free, you know, um, or, 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 or are innate to not having such adversities, yes, of course, you know, the motivation for crime goes down. But I can't really tell you that because, I mean, look at Bernie Meredith, look at a lot of, you know, there's a lot oh, yeah. of blue-collar crime out there, too. So, I mean, it just depends on your definition of what makes it really crime. Crime is crime. There's different types of crime. There's civil, there's criminal, there's a lot of different types of crime out there. I think it has to do innately with your own moral set of values and principles, too, and what motivates you. That's what I found so interesting about Punch and his dad. 
doing millions and millions of dollars in uh, highly insured thefts, and their watchword was, nobody gets hurt. Never. Yeah, I don't know too much about, um, you know, the, the, the crime aspect of Punch. I just know him as a good person and an artist. Yeah, well, back when he was a, uh, shall we say, a professional criminal, uh, he was probably, an, he's internationally exalted, acknowledged as the world's greatest safe cracker. The reason they call him Punch is he could punch open a safe in under 16 seconds. I uh, thought it was because he was really jacked when he was younger. I mean, I saw a photo of him. He looked like a pro wrestler. <laughs> well, he was in great shape. That's a fact. Now, that's why they called him Punch was because he could punch a safe in under 16 seconds. Uh, he and his dad, their motto, their watchword was, nobody gets hurt. Yeah, and I think that's a smart model to have. You know, I think that's, that's it's, it's, a, it's again, you know, that's why I like Punch. He's a very, very, very good guy, you know, and he's also has a lot of morals, too. I mean, you know, one, one guy I like a lot is Robert De Niro. I like, you know, the old school, if you would say New York and L.A. and Hollywood, too, you know, Al Pacino and those guys, and it seems like they they had a sense of class, you know, to them, too, having diverse backgrounds. But, you know, nobody gets hurt. You do your job. Da, da, da. That was what they did at the end of the day. Um, but I'm not proponent and I'm not endorsing in any uh, uh, activities illicit from what we have in our judicial branch of the system, but I am saying as a person, I think Punch and his dad and all of them are morally, you know, very nice people, and Punch is, who, you know, is, a, is a wonderful guy, the man that I know today. Yeah. And, I, and I think maybe his name was Punch because he looked like he could punch through a room. <laughs> could punch through a wall. <laughs> like George Reeves is Superman, you know. Or so that's, that's why I call him Punch. I call him Punch because I think he could punch through a wall, a brick wall. <laughs> or squeeze that uh, lump of coal until it turned into a diamond like Superman did in that episode on TV. Mm -hmm. I always liked that one. <laughs> Wish I could do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> My producer goes, yep, yeah, me too. He's no, it's true. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's also important to realize that we're living a new world order. And I use that coin. I like to use that 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 that, uh, that expression a lot lately, um, mainly because of you know the world that we're in, but also you know George Bush Senior you know mentioned it first. He said a new world order, and everybody starts conspiracy. Oh, it goes back farther. It goes back a lot farther economy, than that. that. One global government is that this and that. To me, a new world order means a a, a new era of um, let's say you know thinking and a new era of let's say. Uh, just information. The internet and the technology age created a new world order. I mean, you know, if you do something stupid, it's online. If you put something <laughs> out there, it's online. Yeah, it's, it's online. You know, it's, it's totally even if you now. don't, it's online. <laughs> yeah, if you don't, it's online. I mean, you're right. If you don't do something, it's going to be online. Like, I'm doing this interview right now. Yeah. And who knows what happens 10 years from now, 15 years from now. They'll be like, do you remember when you did that interview? And I'll be like, I do remember it, you know? And, they, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's a new world order, you know? Everything is, is scrutinized like that. And I think it makes it tougher, too, you know, on that topic, too, for a lot of people to be able to either a um you know live live a life of you know just you know who they are and b it's made a tougher socioeconomic economy for competition when you think about it because you know if you google right now a candle company you've got a million of them if you google this artist you got a million of them so really capitalizing two niches in the market is even more difficult now because of the internet and this technology age, that there's so many options out there, and there's so much competition. But again, that's what makes us great. And the United States, we're back-to-back -back World War champs. We're back-to-back -back economy champs. We're back-to-back -to, -back to whatever the hell we want champs, and that includes, you know, the Olympics too. So um, I think that that competition and this new world order that we're in, we're going to be just fine. Yeah, the uh, the world's equilibrium hath been upset by the vibrating influence of this new world order. Now, that goes back to the 1950s with Shoghi Effendi's quote on the topic. And uh, he also said that there would be a, a form of international communication working at lightning speed, connecting all the world. People said, oh, yeah, right. This is the 1950s? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, I can believe that, too, because at that time, I mean, if you think about it, what is that? We had the telegraph system. You know, we had... Sure, May 23rd, 1844, Samuel yeah, Morris. I mean, yeah, I mean, I could see that, you know, and, and then 150 years from now, they're going to say, well, we said we're going to have flying cars, you yeah, know, yeah. and we probably will have flying cars, but I think that, you know... And we, bad we drivers. <laughs> society are, are, are definitely, just again, look at how much our, our, our technology has advanced in the last five years. I mean, I couldn't believe that the iPhone came out, I think, in 07, 08 or something. Um, and, I'll and tell you what, take a look at how much travel, medicine, the arts, etc. changed since Samuel Morris sent out that telegraph, May 23rd, 1844. What, look in your own life, what existed in terms of how your home is powered, how your illumination, travel, medicine, the arts, what existed prior to May 23rd, 1844, or was utilized prior to 1844? Well, I don't know prior to 1844 because I'm not that old and I haven't researched it, but I can tell you, yes, you are completely correct. It's a totally different world. And, but I don't even look, like, I mean, I was born in 1988, so. Boy, I didn't think anyone was born after the Beatles broke up. No, right? No, I'm an 88 guy, so I can tell you this. I remember the only, I can go and say I can remember before when I called my friend's house, I didn't have to dial the zip code. So, oh, the area, um, code, area code, excuse me. Yeah. So it would just be their phone number, the three digits followed by the phone, four, four-digit number. We didn't have to do that. Now then there was like, oh, you have to do an area code, and then cell phones, and then the Internet, you know, the dial tone. And now, I mean, I mean, when it, then you have smartphones, you know, that's that's everything into one. I mean, it's just, it's crazy, the tablets. I mean, so, and then... Yeah, you're the, your, your phone, your smartphone has more capacity than the uh, computers that were used to... Uh, Plot our uh, path to the moon. <laughs> oh, sorry, no, I heard about that. Yeah, the uh, the, three, the the first iPhone had more. Yeah, than the, 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 the our first Apollo mission to the moon. Yes, I've heard that. And that's uh, when you think about that, that's crazy. Yeah, you're holding that in your hand, but yet now that just shows you American ingenuity. It shows you that we create products, and we have the visionary that you can hold in your hand. Something that is more powerful than took us to the moon. Yeah, that's insane. Something. Yeah. So imagine what it's going to be like ten years from now. My imagination is good, but I don't think it's that good. <laughs> no, there was it depends, a. Uh, it just, I mean, it depends on you know how how, how everything else goes. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a diverse world right now. There's a lot of new ideas. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people and I mean, I don't call it politics. I'll just say there's a lot of people not only in politics but also people that are looking to get involved into making the world a better place or have certain political agendas or have certain interests. And it's going to be interesting the next four to ten years, I think, to see how things go and turn out. But also, you know, if you're on the sidelines, then, you know, you're just going with the herd. Yeah. But if, you, if you're willing yeah, to get I saw in there, a, then, you, you know. I heard a sociologist give a talk, and he, he drew on the board this big, giant lump with two little lines on either side. He said, this big, giant lump, that's the vast majority of people. And this little line in the front, there's people pulling society forward. The line in the back is the one people pulling society backwards. He said right. the interesting thing is the people on the extremes of both ends get treated the same. If you pull Absolutely. society too f forward too fast, they treat you like a criminal. <laughs> you know, that's true. I would say that, you know, I, I agree with that to an extent um, because... You're, you're right. If you are too far one way or another, you're ostracized, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it also depends on what topics you're talking about, too. And, th know, and time goes faster now. For example, yeah. uh, what's his name from uh, South Africa? He could be in prison one year and be president the next, you know. Uh, well, well, let me let me let me point this out. You know the topic, Nelson Mandela. Yeah, that's what um, I meant. I thought apartheid is stupid. I still think it's stupid. So I would be a far one side on it, but it's also the moral and object thing to do. We, you know, Nelson Mandela. You know, he was free. He became the president of South Africa, and you know, he fought for human rights. So I'm a very big, staunch, one drastic Nelson Mandela supporter on that one. I think everybody would be. You know what I mean? It's Nelson Mandela. How can you be against him? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so, they were. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah, they were, but, you know, ultimately he became the president of South Africa, one of the most iconic figures in the, you know, 
you know, world history. But that that would be a, in that time considered an extreme view to believe that you know, oh, he wasn't a terrorist. He was you know somebody that was a freedom fighter. So um, I would be extreme on that view. So it just depends on the topic, I think. Right. This is where yeah, we had that uh, situation with Menachem and Begin and Anwar Sadat. Exactly. That was an interesting one. Two two guys that have both been regarded as terrorists. And uh, Anwar Sadat, I find, is a fascinating person, or was a fascinating person. I'm not too familiar with him, so I couldn't really talk about oh, had a, He had an epiphany one day when he was praying. And while he was praying, he had an epiphany that he should devote the rest of his life to peace. And so that's what he did. And he paid the price with his life. Yeah, I mean, and, and here's the thing, you know, just like you said, that that see, those are two different extremes. I think anyone who devotes their life to peace, their life to peace, well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And if you get ostracized for it, that's awful. But and and that's the thing about politics and also people taking a stance again. And I will say it in the new world order, you know, and in this current climate and system. If you don't want to support. Uh, or if you don't want to take an active role in it, there's nothing wrong with that because it's easier not to get involved than to live an Epicurean or a Stoic lifestyle and to live life that way. I envy those people, to be honest with you. But at the same time, we have to also look at, in my opinion, where we're going to be 10, 15 years from now. Now, I'm 30 years old. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm at, uh, I mean, you know, I'm old. I'm 30. I'm, uh, I, I I'm like, in my 70s, so I could be your grandfather. Okay, so, Grandpa, <laughs> I'm old as hell right now, I feel. But I also feel that I have a unique way. And there's a lot of young people who have unique ideologies and, and not just, you know, um, in, in, in the far left or far right, but they're in the middle, they're moderate. There's also people that, you know, have experience. And I'm lucky and I'm fortunate enough to have been born in this country and starting multiple businesses. I am a member of the United States Chamber of Commerce, you know. I am a member, I, have, I had to write a list the other day for another assignment, um, you know, uh, that, that I had of different organizations and entities that I've worked with or I've donated to. And right now, I'm at 87 oh. since undergrad. Okay, hey, we're out of time. we got to go, but thank you so much, Bradley Damdar. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hope to have you again sometime. Hey, man, what's next? Well, Burl is me. <laughs> Magic Man out on the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lighting Up Loud on OutlawRadioLive.com. I prayed heaven today, bring its hammer down on me and pound you.
Choking smoke of the desert beach will treasure A night with some blue for the air from you Back when birds took a flight from the earth The bonfire burns of the night Come and dance in the light Both floating down a river sleep I can't see how hollow eyes I'm walking along with my boots full of rocks Can't believe these tears in my eyes I give them to you to keep away in the box with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device and it's all free just go to your friendly app store and search for outlaw radio then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it it's free listen free on the road in your car at the beach or in your backyard it's all free from outlaw radio this is buddy twist saying good night from hollywood Such a kind girl Seems so hard to find Someday when we're dreaming Deep in love Not a lot to say Then we will remember Things we said today The following Outlaw Radio audio presentation is parody. Please be a grown-up and accept the following program as it is intended. Some elements of Outlaw Radio may not be suitable for uh, anyone. There may be occasional content that offends you or that you find irrelevant. If that is the case, we are doing our job. Accordingly, listener discretion is advised. Outlaw Radio is not for everybody, but neither is Kim Chi. He was only a good vice president because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. Doohickey, you know, the doohickey that rolls. Hi, this is Beat Loaf. Okay, kids, you know what time it is? You know what time it is? It's Outlaw Radio Time! <laughs> <laughs> 